The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. It's always interesting to note where a near-death experiencer puts the emphasis in telling their story to others. Is it in the fact that the soul continues after our bodies die? Is it the fact that we encounter loved ones who predeceased us and were there for a family reunion when we arrived? Is it that the essence of love and the answers to our questions are available to us on the other side? Is it the experience of personally meeting Jesus or some other figure from our earthly religion who has meant much to us in our lives thus far? Or is it about the change in our perspective of why we are alive and what we are meant to do with the rest of our life on earth? In writing her story, our guest today, Joan Johnson Porter, has introduced herself by saying that she was killed in a head-on car accident, had a near-death experience, and was sent back. But that's not the story, she says. She goes on to say that she came back with brain damage and a profound amnesia and had to start over again with the barest fundamentals, such as how to choose what to eat on her dinner plate. But today, in her first of a book of a four-book series, Joan reveals how we can change our paradigm by using the tools she developed from her near-death experience and from her recovery. Her book is titled How to Fly a Caterpillar. Joan, welcome to NDE Radio. Well, thank you for having me, Lee. Oh, it's uh, glad we worked out all the technology and, and uh, you're coming through loud and clear. Joan, uh, please begin by telling uh, our listeners how your accident happened and what you experienced on the other side. Well, I lived outside of Akron, Ohio, and uh, I was. some friends were staying with us because uh, her father was in the hospital. And um, I was going into town to pick her up from school, and I saw a bus coming towards me on a two-lane road, and behind it was a white car, and suddenly the white car pulled into my lane on this two-lane road. So we hit almost completely head-on at about 100 miles an hour. The speed limit on that road was 50 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. And I managed to turn the car enough so that the front of my car sheared off the left front of his car, and it welded to my car. Wow. I only remember feeling puzzled. And then I was suddenly elsewhere, and elsewhere was a field with mountains in the distance. And to the left, there was a group of children playing a game and singing and playing in a circle. But to the right, it looked like they were setting up long picnic tables for a family reunion. And it really felt like family reunion. And I immediately wanted to go there. But then I was talking to this tall man in front of me, and we talked for quite a while. And then he said, but you know, you have to go back. And I didn't know where back was. Mm. And so I didn't want to go there because I felt like I was home. 
And I looked over at the group of people again, and my grandfather, Tovey, stepped out from the crowd. Now, if Disney had had a model for the for Geppetto in the film Pinocchio, it would have been my Norwegian carpenter grandfather, Tovey. <laughs> and he looked at me over his wire rim glasses, as he always did when we had Sunday dinner at their house. And I, I just shrugged to him. I couldn't, I didn't talk to him, but I, I, I pleaded with, with, you know, reaching out my hands. And he looked and he nodded at me. He recognized that I wanted to stay. And then he shook his head no and motioned that I had to go back. And as I turned to the tall man about to protest, I was suddenly back at the scene of the car accident. I was above and in front of my car and looking at the wreckage. Mm. And by that time, all the kids that had been in the school bus were out on the road. The sheriffs were there. Uh, paramedics had just arrived. And I watched a woman who I later found out was a nurse uh, try to get a pulse on my body's neck. And she called back to the paramedics. I can't get a pulse. She's dead. And I looked at that and I looked at her and the first thought I had was fat chance because I was still angry about being sent back. Yes. Joan, let, I didn't know. let me interrupt you a minute to ask you more about the tall man. What, mm-hmm. what did, uh, do you remember what he looked like and what, what your conversation was about? I absolutely remember him. Uh, I remember him the same way we remember Big events in our lives, like if we were alive when Kennedy was shot, we remember that as a snapshot in life that stays with us. And uh, I do remember him, and I, d- I did not recognize him, and I've never found out his name. Do you, do you think he was a, um, like an angel, or um, was he a, a deceased person? I, I, I think of him more in terms of being an angel. Uh-huh. And, and what, I could have just sat and had him smile at me forever. He, it was the most loving, amazing experience. Ah, uh, what uh, what did you talk about, the two of you? Over the years, I've gotten memories back of that, of those discussions, and I actually learned f- some about physics, how the universe works. Uh, I, I gained a lot of information on how whole systems work and and how change happens in systems. And that's not the usual conversation you have on the other side, but it is the one I had. <laughs> Do you think that has helped you uh, since you've come back uh, and doing what you're doing now? Um, yeah, I think I learned some of the basic principles, uh, even though I didn't consciously remember them until my brain had healed enough to be able to understand them. And so th- this seemed like a a very personalized near-death experience. It was almost as if it was designed for you to to learn and to and to recognize your family of course and also to know that there is an eternal life. Had you been raised in a religion before uh before all this happened? Yes, I was raised a Lutheran and um, in the uh, Swedish Lutheran tradition, and my family was was very spiritual. We weren't real churchy, but we participated in church a lot. My dad was on the church council. 
I, I held positions as a youth, even. Um, so there were, so I was raised in a spiritual religious tradition. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and about how, how old were you when this accident happened? Uh, I was 25. 25, wow. Well, um, so the nurse has decided that you're not you're not alive, and you've decided the nurse is absolutely wrong. <laughs> you, we could, let's let's pick up from that part of the story then. Okay. Well, as I looked over the scene, uh, I couldn't. I really didn't hear much. It seemed like my hearing was tunneled, just like my vision was, so I could only see a circle in front of me clearly, and. As I kept scanning around, I I looked into the car, and my four-year-old daughter was in the passenger seat, mm. and she was she was covered in blood. She just looked like she'd been dipped in a vat of blood. Oh my God! But it, it turned out she only had some facial cuts, and um, she physically she was fine because she had done exactly what we had drilled her to do and she used to think it was so stupid but we would t- drill her to if there was going to be an accident or she felt in danger to roll up in a ball and that's exactly what she had done so she hit the padded part of the door hmm. and the other strange thing is on her side the firewall of the of the front of the car had collapsed all the way to the seat. But since she had rolled up in a ball, she wasn't injured. On my side, the firewall had also collapsed. But as far as the paramedics could see, it had come right to my knees, and they did not know if it had cut off my legs. Mm. When they did get me out of the car, they found that the firewall had bent around my legs, around my feet and legs, and actually prevented them from breaking. Wow. Was that, do you think that was a, a design of the car manufacturer, or was it a miracle? That uh... Uh, Well, they, as the paramedic looked in the car, he said, you have one tough aura, lady. <laughs> I so love it's that. not a car design. <laughs> I, I, I chalk it up to a miracle. I, I think you're right. Wow. And uh, so how did they, did they have to cut the car apart to get you out? Yeah, they had to use the jaws of life to get me out. Mm. I've uh, I've worked as an EMT and had to do that for some accidents I encountered. Um, and then what, ha- what happened next? What do you remember after that? Well, things got weird after that. Uh, it got more strange, actually. Um, in Akron, Ohio, all the children are taken to Children's Hospital. They're not allowed to go to the other hospitals. So my husband, who had been called and came to the accident on his motorcycle, of course, went to the hospital with our four-year-old daughter, which left me to go to the ER alone. And uh, they missed a four-inch break in my skull, two broken vertebrae, a cracked breastbone, uh, a variety of other bruises. I looked like I had four knees. Hmm. Uh, I also had tunnel vision, and I thought I was dead. And if I didn't tell anyone, they wouldn't bury me. Oh, uh, and they sent me home in about two hours, uh, not finding any of that. Uh, wow. I guess that, I wouldn't that, recommend hospitals in Akron, Ohio. Well, not that one. At least not that day. 
Uh, Yikes. And then when I got home, we went to my mother and father-in-law's house since our only car had been wrecked. And that night I went into something like convulsions. Uh, but instead of taking me to the hospital, they just pulled up chairs around me and watched me flop. Mm. And they kept saying <laughs> things like, but if she was really hurt, they would have kept her at the hospital. Oh, my gosh. So, so they were in almost as much shock as I was. Yes. Wow. And this had this ultimately affected your, your um, memory, didn't it? Well, they, uh, I had some memory enough to recognize that the little girl in the car was my daughter, but only for a minute or two. And then apparently the brain swelling and that took over and then that wiped out my memory. Wow. When you saw the, uh, your little girl in the car, though, were you still out of your body when that? Uh... Yes. Yeah, so yes, your I mem- was above the car and in front looking through the windshield at her. So your memory then was not your your from your brain as such, but from, uh, well, from your soul, we call it, or your consciousness. Um, so of course you would you would recognize her in, in that state. Yeah. Hmm. So I recognized things for just a moment. I was able to give them my phone number so they could call my husband, but three minutes later, I had yes. no idea what I had said or what any of that meant. So the swelling took over at that point. Yeah. Well, how uh, how bad did the condition get, and how long did it last? Uh, well, it started out at the worst, where the only thing I knew was my name, and I knew the name of my husband and, and my daughter and my mother and father-in-law, but I had no memory other than just that was their name and what their title was. Hmm. So I realized over the first couple of days that I must have had a life that I didn't remember. And that was kind of a difficult thought to come to. Uh, and I started again with real basic skills literally relearning mechanically how to choose what to eat next on my dinner plate. Otherwise, I'd just stare at it. Hmm. So so the condition you found yourself in was sort of uh, mental paralysis in a way, unless you forced yourself to, to take the next step. Well, the problem was I didn't know where or what the next step was. Oh. See, I not only lost the memory of events – like like amnesia is usually portrayed. Um, but I also lost what I believed, uh, how to form beliefs, how to tell if something's true or false. Um, I, I started over again at toddler status. Wow. Huh. And, and how did you go about relearning all of this? I mean, what... what uh did you have help from others? Uh, no. I wish I could tell you that there were heroes in this story, but there aren't. Uh, there were f- very few people over the years who bothered to help at all. And the medical treatment did not get much better. Mm. Um, they really didn't understand how memory 
was formed or coded or how to access it, but they were really sure they did know. So they just discounted my reports. I'm not quite sure what they thought I would be making up since I had no memory. Hmm. Uh, but it was, it was a big challenge. Uh, I started to make notes on index cards and I kept journals. I could write, but I couldn't read. So I couldn't read back what I had written, but somehow it was better if I wrote it down. And I started to make tools for myself as well, reminders, uh, filling in steps of things. When I only could figure out some of the steps, I would make notes about the others. And eventually I developed a system of actually mapping thought systems that makes a tremendous difference in solving problems and doing all kinds of different work that we do in everyday life. Were these like drawings that you made? Um. Some of them were drawings. Uh, some of them were more like symbols. Uh, and some, and some of it was words. Wow. Interesting. Well, words, words and symbols, I mean, do have a co- correlation. Like God created the universe from speaking word is the, is the image that, uh, uh, the Old Testament and Kabbalah like to use. Uh, in one of uh, one of the things I read uh, about you, you you uh, referenced uh, Dr. Albert Ellis, who's a quite a famous American psychologist, and that he quoted uh, something uh, that you that you'd said or done in his book. Yes, when I when I moved to California, I met a man named Ted Crawford, and Ted was writing a book with Dr. Ellis. And Ted was fascinated at the tools I had created for myself and sent them to to Al, who was based in New York City, and we were, of course, in Los Angeles. And Al wrote me back, and he said it was actually the first original work he'd ever seen in psychology. Hmm. And he's the one who encouraged me to take what I had developed for myself and turn it into tools that people could use in their daily lives. He was the one that really saw that key connection, and he became my mentor. Uh, while they were writing, uh, continuing to write this book on intimate relationships, and in that book he he does quote me. Uh, my name is listed as Joan Jordan Porter in the book because that was my name then. I changed ah. back to my maiden name later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what he quotes me on is that uh, paradigm. Our paradigm is the lens we use to look at the world. And when we learn how to change that lens, we can see different things and we can see differently. And and what did he mean by paradigm? I mean, how did he how did he mean it in that context? Uh, Well, the reference was paradigm is generally used as our milieu or our our general look at the world. The difference that I put into it was it's actually a lens, like a lens in glasses mm-hmm. that let you see different things. And if you can change that lens out, you can actually look at the world from different perspectives and see a lot more than you can see from any one. So he, he felt that or you felt and he understood that you can change that lens and and from time to time or at will to see things differently. 
Oh, you actually can. I've got maps that have changed people's minds in 15 minutes, and they say, oh, I can't go back to the old way of seeing that anymore. Now I see more. I would think this would be very useful in cases like uh, uh, PTSD, where soldiers get uh, have gotten completely hooked on a, an event in their lives, and they can't seem to escape the recycling, you know, that that cur- comes about as a result of that. Uh, yes, it's. I found it very useful in PTSD, wow. and usually just talking about the maps <laughs> that give a more complete picture of. How, what's going on in a situation, and the real cause and effect that's underlying what's going on, a lot heals. Now, there's there's parts of PTSD that are physical, and while these tools can help somewhat, you still have to have the the physical therapy and repairs. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, how do you change a lens? Well, the basic thing is you have to know how to make what's currently invisible visible. And that can be done with really simple mapping. For example, the most basic thing that we have to decide on in life is how we can be safe in the world. Now, this isn't the physical relationships of what you do to be safe. This is how you are in your head, what attitude or belief or ground of being do you have that gives you the sense that you can direct traffic in your life and be safe? And when I asked people about what made them safe or their beliefs about safety, it gave me a lot of platitudes. And and they couldn't talk about the difference between when they said, well, always look a gift horse in the mouth, that's one way to be safe, or never look a gift horse in the mouth, that's a way to be safe. I said, those don't agree. Which is which? <laughs> and they'd look at me blankly. So what I did was look for how can I measure safety instructions. And I found that all of them can be put on a scale with avoid the danger at one end, and develop the skill to handle the danger at the other end. Now, if you draw, if you say avoid the danger, and at the other end of a line you say develop the skill and draw a line between them, every safety instruction that you can think up can be plotted on that scale, whether it's an avoid strategy or whether it's a skill strategy. That makes things more visible. And when people work with that, they come to understand, well, skill is better than avoid. And the, the shorthand for it is you can develop the skill to avoid a rattlesnake, but you can't avoid a piano long enough to learn to play it. So when we start making our safety choices on the skill end, our lives improve and we do much better. Well, then, basically, the uh, uh, the first step in that would be to say, rattlesnakes bad, pianos good. Uh, you've got to make a value decision there, I guess. Mm-hmm. And and well, then and then the, and then the technique for one getting away from a, a rattlesnake and two learning 
to play Chopin, uh, yeah. that's a, that's a much, uh, a greater skill than just, well, I don't know. Is it a greater skill or, or is that first recognition of what it is that you want to avoid and what you want to go to? Is that, is that the biggest step? Yeah. Well, in individual choices, like it's good to avoid a rattlesnake. There are valid avoidance choices, but when you do them with skill, it changes. And this is a topic that is particularly poignant right now because there's so much fear in in response to school shootings and violence and all kinds of things like that. And because we haven't lived in that kind of violence in the recent past, we don't know really how to deal with it. And in some cases, what we're doing to try to make our children safer and feel safer actually frightens them. Because if you go with a skip, with an avoid, strategy whatever your local situation is if you just do avoid it makes the children frightened if what you do is teach them as a skill and and emphasize that now they know how to handle something they've added a skill that diminishes the fear Mm. so there are very practical applications to the things i discovered you uh in some of the material that i have from you 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 talk about a, a class bully and the a child who reacted to the bully by hitting him, and a conversation you had later about Tai Chi and how you can push someone away without physically violating their space or at least not hurting them, and uh, and there thereby avoiding the teacher's <laughs> uh, punishment for for his having struck out at the bully. Um, you, you tell that story to the audience. I think that was very interesting. Well, th- thank you. That w- that's a wonderful memory for me. I had put my school curriculum project space into the gifted program in the L.A. school system. And I was in Watts, and a fourth and fifth grade class, and we had completed our project space work for the day. And as I was talking to the teacher, these two little boys got into a fist fight. And the one who threw the first physical punch was the one that got put in the hallway. Mm. So when I left, he was in tears, sitting in the, on a chair outside the door, just crying and crying. And I said, gee, well, what happened? And he said, oh, he called my mom a bad name, and I had to defend her. And I said, wow, that looks like two really bad choices. Either you look like a coward and let your mom be called a bad name, or you defend her and then you get put out in the hallway. Would you be interested in a third choice? And the tears stopped like a faucet turning off. And he looked up and he said, like what? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, so stand up. And uh, I put my hands up so that uh, he could put his hands up and we could we could push on each other without, and, and do it as a demonstration. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, the other guy, when he's minding his own business, he's standing up straight and he has his own balance. But in order to insult you, he has to push you. And I pushed his hands just enough so that he felt that he was being pushed off balance. And I said, so who's off balance? And he looked at me and he looked at himself and he said, both of us. Mm-hmm. I said, right, now you push me. 
And he, he gave me kind of a funny look like, are you sure you want me to do this later? <laughs> and I said, yeah, come on, push. Well, when he pushed, I did a Tai Chi move and I stepped back, retreating to the superior position, never losing balance. Mm-hmm. And he said, how'd you do that? And then we had a talk about Tai Chi and how that works similarly in language, that if we're minding our own business, we are in balance and we're not off balance. When somebody else pushes us, we have a choice to either stop or to either resist that other person and knock ourselves off balance, or we could retreat to the superior position. So we talked about that a while, and then I was ready to go, and I started towards the door, and the teacher stuck her head out the door, and she said, are you ready to come back in yet? And he said, no, ma'am, I have some things I need to think about. (laughs) Wow. Well, Joan, I think uh, you've given our audience quite a lot to think about just in this half hour. Unfortunately, we're, we're just about out of time. But tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you or and or how they can get a copy of your new book, How to Fly a Caterpillar. Well, if they email me at mde1 at joanjohnsonporter.com, uh, I will send them uh, a freebie report about my near-death experience and uh, and a coupon for some money off on the book when it comes out. It'll be out in January. Wow, that's great. So repeat that. Uh, M- was it MDE? MDE, and- Near Death oh, Experience M- 1. MDE, right. Okay. At Joan, J-O-A-N, Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N, Porter, P-O-R-T-E-R, dot com. And they can also ask any question or uh, make any comment. I would love to hear from everyone. Terrific. Thank you, Joan Johnson-Porter, for sharing your story with us today. It's been a pleasure having you on the show, and good luck with your, with your new book. Well, thank you very much. And uh, if listeners would like to hear this show again or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org and hit the Past Shows button. And for information about IANS, go to their website at IANDS.org. And be with us again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.